The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.deroshi-meyer.org. Celebrating the Servant Savior. Isaiah is an amazing book. And we're going to spend the next several months, Lord willing, walking through major portions of this book. It has 66 chapters, and some have broken it down into seeing that all of biblical theology, all that the Bible has to say is captured in these 66 chapters. There's 66 books in our Bible, and some break Isaiah, write it. Chapter, right after chapter 39, there's 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New, 66 total, and that you move from the book of judgment to the book of hope. And the book of hope in chapter 40 opens with the great tenor solo of Handel, comfort ye, comfort ye. And what are they comforting this broken world with, this world that's sitting in judgment? They're giving comfort because good news is on the rise. Publish it. Proclaim it from the hilltops. Our God reigns. And He reigns ultimately through this servant who moves from tribulation unto triumph in this book. So we're going to focus specifically on the movements in this book through tribulation unto triumph and get Isaiah's vision for hope. Isaiah's vision. And he calls it good news. The New Testament is not the first place we hear about the good news. Indeed, that term, good news, or gospel, shows up in this book for the first time focused on the days of Jesus' coming. Isaiah was the first good news preacher. And I just hope that in the next eight months or so, we can just bathe ourselves in the gospel and let our, our hope rise even as it seems it's getting darker and darker around us. We need light. And one of the images of the Messiah in this book is that He is light that's shining into a very dark, dark world. What book is Isaiah? It's this book. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord, Yahweh alone, will be exalted in that day. This is a book that is going to make all of us who are prone towards self-reliance squirm. Because God will not have it. He opposes the proud, and we're going to feel it in this prophet. He opposes self-righteousness. He opposes those who in the midst of weakness want to maintain anxiety. He's looking for people who are willing to say, I can't do it. I need help. And as we open up our arms for help, He is shown big and we are provided a helper. This is a book where God opposes the proud, but where He will, He will give strength to the humble. And He'll do it ultimately through His Son. This is the book where we read this, but they who wait for the Lord. Waiting is not an easy thing for me. How long, God? How long? Why me? Why this hard? Why is it taking so long for you to show up? Those who wait, who wait for the Lord. Keep trusting, holding on. You are worth my trust. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I want that kind of strength. Because I'm not prone toward that kind of living. I want to learn what it means to wait on the Lord and what is there in front of me that can make me want to wait and not give up and not give in. Isaiah, I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. How big is this God? We don't want to make Him small and Second, perhaps only to the book of Exodus, Isaiah is about displaying the bigness of our God. This is about big God theology. Nothing outside of His control. Nothing. I form light, and I am the one who creates darkness. 
Darkness is not outside of the control of our God. Yet He is a God who is perfectly holy, perfectly good, in no way tainted by evil, in the slightest, and yet evil is not operating randomly outside of His control. Satan is like a dog on a leash, and he can only go as far as God lets him go. And when God says, no more, it's no more. We can only stay resistant to our God until the point when he says, no more. And then the power of the Spirit comes in and overcomes our resistance. This book will make us feel small. And in our smallness, we will find ourselves being upheld by a God who says, I am for you and not against you. All the power in heaven and on earth working for us in the sun. He is the one who forms light and creates darkness. I am the one who makes well-being and creates calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. This is a book that will not let us think that God's been caught off guard when trouble hits Why? Because this book wants us to have absolute hope that God is still on the throne and that if I'm in the darkest brokenness, I don't have to worry when I call out to Him whether or not He can indeed show up. No, all of it is in His hand. Even when I don't understand why it's going this hard and why it's this dark and why my heart is this broken... Isaiah comes in and testifies. God is still on the throne. And if you are trusting in Him, He is for you 100%. He is not only willing, He is able, able to meet you in your trial. The Gospel of Isaiah. How does it all come? He bore the sin of many, this servant Savior. And right now, that servant Savior makes intercession for the transgressors before his father. That's what book we're about ready to enter into. To that end, let's pray. Father, our hearts rise wanting to meet you. And I stand here feeling like a very small instrument. Feeling like a clay pot. And yet you say, that's what I want to use. I want to use a clay pot so that the surpassing power is known to not come from it, but from me. And so I'm praying that the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, would shine through this very frail, small, insignificant vessel that your truth bound up in the book of Isaiah would be able to move through this frail instrument and come effectively to these people. That, That even I would be set aside and that as people have their Bibles open, that they would have encounters with you week by week. We're, We're praying for it because we are very needy and we long for hope. And you've supplied it in this good news book. So I pray that you'd bring it that you would use this book to remind us of your greatness, heighten our courage to face tough times, to fill us up with good news when we really need to hear good news. Thank you that you are on the throne, that you reign and that you chose 2,000 years ago to make your global reign public through the person of your Son, who came in exercising demons, healing blind eyes, even raising the dead, yet not doing it with all, yet doing it enough so that we would know you are real and that we have hope. We look forward to the day when there will be no more tears and no more hunger. Carry us to that end, we pray, through Jesus. Amen. Why don't you open up your Bibles to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. 
these next two weeks are a little bit different in that I'm going to use chapter one over these next two weeks to try to give some tools for you in how to read the prophets. And I'm going to talk about what prophecy is using chapter one, and then we're going to look at four key guidelines, and you see them on your um, yellow sheet. Guidelines for interpreting the prophets, think in terms of oracles, pay attention to history, remember the covenants and the canon, and see and savor Christ and the gospel. So we're going to take the next two weeks to look at this one chapter, but what that means is that we're not going to arrive at see and savor Christ explicitly. We've already done it, but but not explicitly from this. I'm not going to get to that section until next week. So, And then we're just going to tackle key passages walking through the book of Isaiah and just try to use this pattern, this fourfold pattern, week after week, on a single text, and then we'll move on on through the book. So this is kind of instructional, and um, in a distinctive way, you're going to want your Bibles open. If you um, have a Bible with footnotes in it, like those little letters, and they send me to the cross-references, and they say A, and then there's a list of verses, we're going to use those today. Um, and if not, you'll get to snuggle next to the person who's near you who may have one. So, Isaiah. If you were to just call Isaiah by a, a role title, what would you give him? What was he in the Old Testament? A prophet. Somebody define for me what a prophet is. Okay, he's a mouthpiece for God. Now, this happens within a certain context. The prophet doesn't just show up. He's actually speaking within a framework. Anybody know what that framework of relationship is called? The covenant. So he's a covenant mouthpiece. He's an ambassador of the heavenly court, and he's specifically an enforcer of the covenant that God set up through Moses. Look at a couple texts that talk about prophets in general, then we're going to dive into Isaiah 1. Here's Jeremiah 23. God says, I didn't send all those false prophets. That's what they are, they're false. I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I didn't speak to them, yet they prophesied. One of the things we find inside the Bible, and one of the things we find outside the Bible, is that there were lots and lots of people with words from the gods. In the ancient Near East, in the, mater- in the material we know of that we've discovered outside the Bible, but from the period of the Bible, prophets are in every city rampant, speaking the words of the gods. Here, the Lord says, I didn't tell them to go. They're not my prophets. If they had stood in my counsel." Think about what that means about a Yahweh prophet. Yahweh being the name of God. If they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. So we see an ultimate goal here, that the prophet of Yahweh is one who has a goal of turning people from evil, from restoring them to good deeds rather than evil deeds. And he's one who has actually stood in the counsel of God. You remember Joel, uh, Job chapter 1, where all the sons of God, the angels, gathered, and also there was the Satan. They gathered in the counsel of the Lord, and they got their marching orders. What this is suggesting is that not only are angelic beings there, the prophets on earth somehow tap into that council and get instructions from God. 
They are ambassadors of the heavenly court. How about 2 Kings? What were the prophets doing in history? The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer. It's another word for prophet. And it was before they were ever called prophets, we're told in 1 Samuel, they were called seers. Because the prophets have a a very unique role. They not only see into the future things that no one else can see, they can see into the present in ways that no one else can see. Most eyes are blind. It was like these prophets, if you remember the late 90s movie, The Matrix. These prophets had already had their minds opened. They got to enter into the dark world called The Matrix, where everyone thought everything was okay, but they could see it was not okay. They could see how enslaved every mind was to the great computer. The prophets have eyes to see into the hearts of people and identify their sin when they think all is well. They are seers. And they're prophets, which is connected to the word to proclaim forth. Through my prophet, through every seer, I warned, I warned Judah and Israel, turn from your evil ways, keep my commandments and my statutes. Notice the connection there between the covenant stipulations. In accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but they wouldn't listen. And in rejecting the commandments and the statutes, what were they doing? They were despising his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. So the prophets are about engaging covenant violators. Specifically, the covenant with Moses. So the more we can know Moses, the better we'll be able to read our prophets. We'll understand that they were preaching with their Bibles open not their Bibles closed. They weren't making things up to judge people on. There was a standard that the people already were aware of, and the prophets are simply recalling that standard and identifying where they've gone wrong. So Isaiah is the mouthpiece of God. So look with me in Isaiah chapter 1. And just let your eyes roam through the text in Isaiah 1, and see if there's any phrases that jump out at you that identify Isaiah is not speaking on his own accord, he is simply speaking the words of God. Just yell out certain phrases and tell us what verse you identify it in. The Lord has spoken, verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 10. He's simply a mouthpiece for one greater. His presence is all contingent on the one whom he's speaking for. And he's declaring the word of the Lord. What else? Says the Lord, exactly. Come, let us reason together. This isn't about Isaiah calling the people to reason with him. He's simply, as he speaks, Yahweh is speaking, and and through the prophet, God is calling his people to come to terms. The Lord declares, specifically, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Verse 20, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, here's my, my list. The Lord has spoken. Hear the word of the Lord to the teaching of our God. Say, says the Lord. Oh, look with me at verses 11 through 17. Notice how this plays out. Verse 10 says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Now, as we're going to see, he's not talking to the city of Sodom that was destroyed long ago. But he's characterizing Jerusalem as if it were like Sodom. And so he's just blasting them. 
But then notice how he says, give ear to the teaching of our God. Isaiah identifies himself with his people, calling them to listen to their God. But then verse 11 changes. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. Do you see, who's the me? Who's the first person speaker? God. All of a sudden, it's as if Isaiah's not even here. He's not talking about God. As he speaks, God is speaking in first person. When you come to appear before me, verse 12, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. All your singing, all your offerings, all your praises mean nothing because I know your heart is far from me, God says. Your new moons, verse 14. Your appointed feasts, my, my soul hates. This isn't Isaiah talking. This is God talking. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean, verse 16. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. The prophet is a mouthpiece of the living God. This is the word of God. And in these prophets, we we hear it in a very unique way. Because they speak, thus says the Lord, and we hear the Lord often speaking in first person. But then Isaiah will come in and talk about God. And, And it goes back and forth, and often it doesn't say... It doesn't have to say, thus says the Lord. Now I'm going to speak on behalf of God. Instead, he could just move directly from talking about God in third person to speaking on behalf of God in first person. Moving from he to I. Does being a prophet of Yahweh um, require a connection with the Mosaic or the Davidic covenants? No, it doesn't. Abraham was a prophet of Yahweh. And the apostles, we know them under 12 names. Judas gets kicked out, and then a replacement. They too are prophets. They're the end times, latter days prophets, who through them comes the word of the God and scripture comes forth. And they're not directly linked with the Mosaic Covenant. So this linkage with the Mosaic Covenant is specifically related to once the, what I call the Constitution of the United Tribes of Israel comes into being, the book of Deuteronomy, once that Constitution becomes settled with this particular nation, to Abraham, God promises, I'm going to make you into a nation. That stage one promise of the Abrahamic Covenant. Stage two is, through you all the world will be blessed. Stage two happens in the New Covenant. Stage one happens in the Mosaic Covenant. And so when God finally makes them into a nation, they get their constitution called the book of Deuteronomy. From that point forward, up until the time when the old Mosaic Covenant comes to an end, the prophets are speaking directly in light of the Mosaic Covenant. But you can have a prophet of God before the Mosaic Covenant, and you can have a prophet of God after the Mosaic Covenant, who is speaking then in relation to other covenant. The standard upon which they're speaking is based on something else. When Abraham calls Abimelech to judgment, and he's called a prophet of the Lord... He's speaking and he's talking to someone who's not related to Israel. And the only covenant that Abimelech would have been a part of in relation to God would have been the Noahic covenant. And Abraham is speaking as a representative of all the world who's under that Noahic covenant and holding Abimelech accountable to live for the Lord when he, wasn't, when he was uh, gearing up to commit adultery. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at how this prophet relates to the Mosaic Covenant for today. So why don't we... Almost, almost there. Um, 
if you were to, before you came in here, think about what is the role of the prophet, would you put the main role to be foretelling, future-looking, telling us what's going to happen in days to come, or would he be a foreteller, that is, a preacher, who's telling people how they should live today? Which, which would it be? Forthtelling or foretelling as the primary? Yeah, okay. Forthtelling. How many foretellers do we have? Foretelling as in prediction. Yeah, where that's maybe the primary. If we just look at Isaiah 1 for percentages, this is how I calculated it. That he's 76% of the time preaching, calling them to live for God, and only 23% of the time looking to the future. And even when he looks to the future, it's in order to change how they live in the present. Because what you hope for tomorrow will change who you are today. If you're dreading punishment tomorrow, it may impact whether or not you engage in this sinful activity now. If there really is future grace promised to those who wait on the Lord, it may move you to persevere in the present. Because what you hope for tomorrow will change who you are today. The message that was revealed? Yes. So, the Nets translation in, in Isaiah 1.1, in the ESV we read, vision that Isaiah saw, and the Nets translation translates that the message. Is that what you're saying, getting at, Chris? The message. Um, does it say the message that he saw? That was revealed to him in the sense of what follows is a bunch of words. Did he see a picture when he saw a vision? Or did he see, or was this a, a, a download of revelation? An awakening? At one level, he's seeing a vision. He's seeing darkness in the lives of his present audience, and he's seeing darkness and light as two realities that are going to face all the world. Some enjoying light, some enjoying darkness. And, or enjoying is the wrong word there, experiencing darkness. And so the message that is then given to him as a forth teller. And my point is that even when he's foretelling, looking to the future and predicting, even that has something to do with the present living of his people. It's supposed to change who they are. So let's look at the very first of our guidelines. With your Bibles open, we're going to, first thing we want to do is think in terms of oracles. Oracles is a prophecy term, right? Here's how I define an oracle. Think about it with respect to foretelling and foretelling. An oracle is any divine pronouncement, that is, it's coming from God, being pronounced by the prophet, any divine pronouncement through a prophet that directs human action in the present, foretelling, or foretells future events. And I think what you're going to find is that these prophets are filled with oracles that could be categorized in one of those two areas that are directing human action in the present, this is how you should be living, or anticipating future events. Now there's four different kinds of oracle statements that we find in the prophets. We find indictment, instruction, warnings and punishments, and hope and salvation declared. What's indictment? What does that mean if you're going to indict someone? Convict them based on what? Guilt. So it's, an, it's a statement of what their guilt actually is. What is the nature of their offense? That's the indictment, and we're going to see indictments in the prophets. Instruction. Well, that's basic. They're telling them how they should live. 
But both the, the instruction and the indictments are related to something specific in the covenant. Moses gave lots of instructions. And the offenses are when they fail to keep what Moses called them to, at the core of which was love the Lord your God with all and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are Moses' words, not just Jesus's. And so the, the offenses and the instructions are directly related to those covenant principles. The warnings and the punishments are anticipations of what will come to those who fail to obey. Declaration of punishment to be carried out. And hope and salvation, what is it? Pardon? The good news. That there is future hope and deliverance for some. For whom? How do I arrive there? So all of these, statement of offense, clarification of the expected response, declaration of punishment, and affirmation of future hope, all of these, what I want you to see, are related to the covenant. Indictments are specific covenant stipulations that are violated. Instructions are a call to heed the covenant stipulations that Moses gives, especially in Deuteronomy. The warnings and punishments are directly related to the covenant curses. And the statements of hope and salvation that look beyond judgment to something greater on the other side of punishment, these are the restoration blessings of the covenant. Now, if you look right here on your green handout, don't be intimidated by this. All I've done is I've gone through and I've cataloged in Leviticus 26, which is a chapter all loaded with blessings and curses of the, of the Mosaic Covenant, that is the covenant through which Moses established, and then Deuteronomy chapter 4, Deuteronomy 28, and Deuteronomy 30. Those are the basic chapters. And I've gone through and I've cataloged all the blessings and all the curses and all the restoration blessings of the covenant as a tool for you to say what is being declared here with respect to promises of future dread or promises of future hope and where might I find it? Now, along with that tool, because unless Jason were to teach and have done that homework, probably most of you wouldn't have had that. But most of you do have your Bibles. So what I want us to do is I need um, four people who will stand up and read for us. We're just going to read through chapter 1 together right now. Okay? And as these four people read... I want all of you to, with your Bibles open, be looking for, is this indictment? Is this instruction? Is this warning? Or is this hope? That's where we're going to start. So I need four volunteers who can read for us. Okay. Thank you. And Mark, thank you. Yes. So, okay. Number one, all the way in the back, you can... Read up through verse 9, 1 through 9, okay? Then um, Mark 10 through 20. Oh, I said 4. I only need 3. 3. So, yes. Uh, 21 through 31. Yes. So, everybody, you'll, when, when you're reading, stand up for us so everybody can hear you well. And just... As we walk through this passage, just look for where these are. And if you want to even mark it on the side, this is indictment. This is instruction. Keep this in mind as we walk through the passage. Indictment. What verses stand out where he's simply declaring what their offense is, where their sins are? 
Verse 4, sinful people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. He's just laying it out. There is your problem. Where else? Two and three. They don't know the Lord. They don't know me. This people does not understand. 21 through 23. The cities become a whore. Righteousness used to lodge in her, but now murderers. They love bribes. They run after gifts. They don't bring justice to the broken. So here's, here's what I had had. 2 through 4, 21 through 23. How about instructions? Where does he tell them what they should be doing? 16 through 20. All of those guiding how they should be living. Instructions. 10 through 17. How about specific warnings? Now, here we get, we have a, the challenge in that some of the punishments have already come, and some are still to come. So, where do you see punishments that have already come? Verse 5. The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there's no soundness in it. Verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. The daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard. It's like not surrounded by lots of other booths. No, Jerusalem is alone. Everything else has become leveled. All that's left is the city. That's, that's the picture that we're getting here. How about promises of what will be in judgment? Where do you see that? But rebels and sinners shall be broken together. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks... Of, that you desired, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. All of these are future-oriented, just focused on coming wrath, coming judgment. But then we also see some statements of hope. Where do you see them? Let us reason together, says the Lord, verse 18. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. I'm sitting here wondering, how's that going to come about? Tell me, is it Isaiah dependent on what verse 19 says? If you're willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. How good and obedient do I have to be, Isaiah? That would be a question that I have in my, hand, in my mind. According to Moses, he says, it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, just as He has commanded us. And here's a people living underneath the Mosaic Covenant, and I think they should be feeling, we couldn't do it in the past. How can we do it in the future? Yet the promise is clear. Your sins will be made white. How? A good biblical theologian through Christ's blood. Okay. Okay. Verse 27 Zion will be redeemed. Remember in high school grammar, there's a difference between actives and passives. So this is a passive. Will be redeemed. Dr. Andy Nacelli. He hates passives, except in the Bible where it's full of them. But if a student is writing with passives, he just nixes it. But here, Zion will be, will be redeemed by justice. Those in her who repent will be redeemed by righteousness. So then it raises the question, is it a justice that I will work or a justice that another will bring? 
And this book, right up here in the chapter 1, it's, it's setting a stage, it's raising questions. But all of these are specifically statements of hope and salvation. Now, if you were wanting to know how grounded is, are these words in specific statements in the Pentateuch, how might you go about, if you didn't have this chart, how might you go about figuring that out? Your chain references. So a chain, a whole bunch of links. And that's what our footnotes are for. So all I did is I went through my ESV. I didn't type in any Hebrew words. I didn't try to go places that you couldn't go. I went into my ESV and then I went into my brand new NIV uh, Zondervan Study Bible that also has these footnotes. My kids just went and we just got our kids new Bibles and it was so hard for me as a dad to let them get Bibles without footnotes. But they had really cool covers and that's the ones they wanted. (laughs) But you should have Bibles with footnotes because people have gone before you upon whom you can stand and these are not just um, the footnotes in the ESV and the footnotes in the NIV Bibles are not, um, uh, what's it called when you... What's it called when you just jump in and pull things out of context? What's that? Proof texting. These are not proof texts. They're just absent from the context. No, these are godly men and women scholars who have wrestled deeply and are trying to say, there's a true parallel here. You need to, I'm I'm giving it to you. Track it down. So all I did was I went through, after I broke down, what are the indictments? What are the instructions? I went through and just cataloged all the footnotes in the ESV and in the NIV that were specifically related to the Pentateuch. What's the Pentateuch? First five books, Pentateuchos, five scrolls of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which is where the Old Covenant is given. So if I wanted to know how is these words of the prophets, what kind of Bible are they using, what texts might be on their mind, well, you might go to the indictments And look up on verse 2. How many people have a footnote in verse 2? In their ESV, how many people have have an ESV with a footnote at verse 2? Okay. I see one hand. More? Okay. And am I right that these are what you find in your ESV footnote? On verse 2, you see Deuteronomy 4, specifically related to the first five books. Deuteronomy 4.26, 32.1, and 15. So that's what the ESV translators gave us. The NIV guys, they only gave us 4.26 at this point. But then you'd go and you'd look them up and you'd say, does that help me any? Well, what you'll find in those texts is that you see a comparable statement like, Hear, O heavens! Oh, give ear, O earth. And you hear something like that Moses said, but as I read it, I thought, I don't think that helps me too much. So then I kept reading. Somebody go all the way down to verse 23. Here's what verse 23 says. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. Somebody read for me Exodus 23, verse 8. So this is a footnote in the ESV and in the NIV. You've got your Bible in your Bible study, and you're like, how does the Old Testament relate to what I'm saying? How was Isaiah using his Bible? And it sends me back to Exodus 23, 8. What does it say? So Moses was clear. You shall take no bribe. Now Isaiah says, you're taking bribes. Reading your Bible this way, taking the time, it'll help you build connections. It'll help you all of a sudden feel like this is not a a preacher speaking out of the blue and I'm just going in to read what he says. It's, It's giving you an understanding of how they were using their Bibles. 
And Moses explicitly said, don't take a bribe. And Isaiah, I think, he may even have that text on his mind. How about we go to verse 17? This is the most explicit statement about what they should do. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And the ESV didn't help me any. If I was there, I would have put some texts in there. But the NIV did give us some. So somebody look up Exodus 22, 22, and somebody look up Deuteronomy 14, 29. Actually, you don't have to look up Deuteronomy 14. Do not look up, do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. That could have been multiplied by dozens and dozens of times in the Pentateuch. Real, practical steps of justice for the weak, for the poor, is everywhere in Moses. And we're going to see in Isaiah, it was one of the biggest problems. Those who were strong, taking advantage of those who were weak. And God's looking for people who will follow in the paths of Christ, who, when He came to a bruised reed, He didn't break it. When He came to a faintly burning wick, He didn't blow it out. That's Isaiah. Isaiah 42. And we want to follow in his paths. So all I, my point here is just to say, you can begin to use your Bibles even without my chart. The footnotes are there to help you say, there's scholars who've wrestled longer than we have with these books that are giving signals to us to help us become better readers of Scripture. So you'll be able to see how the prophets are, are bathed in the covenant if you take time to look up specifically where would I find these covenant texts in Genesis through Deuteronomy. How about verse 7? Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. Guess what we'll find in Deuteronomy 32? Guess what it says? What does Moses promise is going to happen? What do you think, based on the verse? Desolation. Everything will be famished. Or that he will bring specifically fire that will devour the land. This is part of the curse. If you run from God, God takes sin desperately seriously. And the prophets are simply saying, it's already happened. It's already happened, and yet you didn't learn from it. Leviticus 26 says, I'll bring great devastation. And yet if you don't repent, I'll bring more devastation. And if you don't repent, I'll bring more devastation. Isaiah's point is you've already experienced devastation. What did Moses say was supposed to happen? Devastation is to be followed by an awakening that says, I'm a sinner, I need help. Repent before the, before the Lord. Cast your sins upon Him. He will carry you. But the people resist in Isaiah's day. But I begin to understand that framework by, by reading the texts more broadly. The hope and salvation texts, so much more could have been written here, but I, the same texts that are being listed... Um, for example, uh, in verse 7, Deuteronomy 28.51, everything will be made desolate. If you look at your very first page of your covenant curses sheet and go down to number 12 under curses, decimation and infertility, decimation of cattle, Deuteronomy 28.51, and it's listed right there. So, um, I think that we want, to, uh, re- we want to read our Bibles in light of the covenant. These are covenant enforcers, and next week we're going to come back, we're going to look at history, we're going to consider further the significance of the covenant and the rest of Scripture when it comes to interpreting the prophets, and then, Lord willing, if I have time, we're going to 
even next week, get into seeing and savor Jesus, savoring Jesus within this chapter and considering how would we do that when Jesus isn't mentioned at all. The suffering servant is never mentioned at all. And yet this is an introduction to the whole book. So we're taking two weeks to give a little instruction in how at least I go about reading these prophets. How I've been, when I went through Zephaniah last fall with you, took 18 weeks and went through the book of Zephaniah, how did I go about preparing for that? This is how I went about preparing for it. I was thinking in terms of oracles. I was remembering history. I was keeping in mind the covenant and the rest of the biblical canon. And I had a goal of seeing and savoring Christ in the gospel at every step. I want to see you be able to do that process in your own personal devotions. And Lord willing, I'll be able to model it effectively for the rest of the year as we walk through this book. Let me pray. Father, I thank you that you are our help. You are our shield. You are a strong tower, one in whom we can find refuge. You, with all of your great power, you're for us and not against us. Father, there was a helplessness underneath the Mosaic Covenant. There was a call to obedience, and yet they couldn't do it. They should have cried out, and they didn't. Cried out for mercy. Cried out for you to make possible for them what they could not make possible on their own. I pray that you'd carry us and let us see that that is where Isaiah is headed. He wants to devastate every heart in order that they might be fully opened up to a non-self-reliant gospel. One in which they embrace and receive everything and don't bring anything to the table. I pray that we would magnify you and see our hearts growing in affections for your greatness through this book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.